Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome to the show. This is David Eastall and this is the C86 Show. Welcome once again for another thrilling ride of life. As I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't and some you should. Always playing the finest in indie pop as we cross time, space and genre. This week, our special guest is going to be Johnny Brown from the Band of Holy Joy. So I've got that interview broken up into three or four easy-to-digest little segments for your excitement. But to get the party rolling, I think we should play your favourite of mine. This is Manic Magic Majestic. Take it away.
Charlotte Pantsans from the band of Holy Joy, and that was a track titled Manic Magic Majestic. That was also from the album of the same title that came out in 1989. Yes, you did the maths. That was 30 years ago on Rough Trade Records. Anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And this week's special guest is going to be Johnny Brown from the band, who I spoke to very recently, in fact, to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that sort of groovy stuff. So I've got that interview that's going to come your way really soon. But before all that, we always like a bit of admin. Yes, if you want to contact me, we love your messages. You can via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86show. I will be there hopefully. And also all the shows that I've done up to now, about two and a half years worth, um, a weekly show, they're all being archived. So you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Bixcloud and Podbean. Go and check it out. It might just change your life. Anyway, before the first part of the interview, I think we should play another track. This is going to be titled, he says, looking down. Yes, I know, baubles, bangles and emotional tangles. It rhymes. Anyway, One more song, then quality chat. Take it away, boys.
And that's the band of Holy Joy with a track titled Baubles, Bangles and Emotional Tangles. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show and this week's special guest is going to be Johnny Brand from the band. And this is going to be the first part of our interview. I know, the excitement is growing. And this is, um, after lots of exciting conversation and chat, is when I asked him a little bit about the beginning of their musical journey back in the early 80s. And this was Johnny's reply. Johnny, take it away. Yes, we were from 1983 right right until now, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is quite amazing. So how did the band come together? Sort of, you know, the, 80, the early 80s was quite an interesting period with, I don't know, lots of different little scenes, but there was definitely an alternative scene going on um, that I can remember. We we were squatting in, in New Cross Gate and we there was just a whole scene there of just you know, of artists and musicians. And we shared a, a big house with a band called Test Department. Oh, yes. Who were industrialists. And we had just this really, really beautiful cellar, this basement, just full of old instruments, of metal, of, of loads of, you know, synthesizers and tape recorders loads of junk instruments and we just we started making music on on all this junk really yeah and did it Uh, did it start to come together relatively quickly quite quickly yes yeah yeah Mm -hmm. i mean there's lots there's lots of people living in in the houses in the area so we could draw on a whole load of friends just to play trombones or accordions uh, and we, we we had a, a remit, which was, you know, we didn't, want, we didn't want to use guitars or drums, if possible, or play sort of normal venues, just to make a sort of really beautiful sort of exotic noise, really. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but, but the lyrical concerns, I think, and the, the aesthetic was very much like the Smiths or like the June Brides or Orange Juice or The Fall. It was, you know, it was within that indie sort of framework except the music we were making just absolutely wasn't. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's interesting because having done this show for many years, most people, there's three artists that people often mention. One's the June Brides and Phil Wilson, Morrissey and the Smiths. And also Robert Forster from the Go-Betweens was the other band that a lot of people seem to be very influenced by and um, have have name-checked as kind of like they were the people that, for people in the band at that time, they they were held up as kind of like, you know, role models, I suppose. Well, our role model was Edwin out of Orange Juice. And, but we were cast further. We were sort of really Jacques Brel. And we were really Northern Soul and Disco. Right. Well, that's, that's quite so a nice mix. We, we sort of, it was, yeah, but Edwin absolutely was our sort of go-to. Go-to person. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Mark and, E. Smith out of the fall too. Yeah. And did you, I mean, during that time, because there was kind of a lot of unemployment and there was a lot of angst going on, the 80s angst period. I mean, one thing that I noticed that was very important for a lot of bands was was, was bizarrely, like you said, squatting, but also, you know, being able to claim the dole. And if anyone, if you get on the enterprise allowance or, the, you know, one of those kind of schemes that the government had brought in for a year, where you could be self-employed for a year, that seemed to give a lot of people time to, you know, craft their... We were totally, absolutely on the enterprise allowance, and it was such a gift. Yes, I I, I, I realised that a lot of people really were able to use that 
one year to um, focus on their music or art? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it was more than a year for us. It was about three or four years until we got taken up by Rough Trade. It was, you know, that, that, that kept us alive, really. Right. Yes. And did you and did you sort of start to develop your sound quite quickly? I just wondered, you know, how that that sort of started to come off, because sometimes what I've noticed with a lot of bands, you know, there's a five year narrative, you know, they get together, they're making a bit of a sound. They have two years, you know, doing something. Then often John Peel would pick it up. That would give them that, you know, play, which in, that, in those days was really big. The John Peel session, that first album. I mean, did you did things come together for you in, you know, relatively quickly, or did it did really quickly? Uh, we shifted three, four, five, six, seven times over the years. Right. Uh, you know, we, we, our first recordings are electronic. The synthesizer. Um, Zither, accordion, inside of pianos, lots of percussion, lots of found sound. And then we veered towards a sort of urban folk sound, bringing accordions in, banjos and things, and got this sort of almost Tom Waits type sound. Yeah. And but... then when we, we sat in a rough trade, we got this sort of lush sort of indie sort of sound. You know, it's got really, you know, we had the money then. We, we, we you know, we had a sort of really go to a good studio and produce something really lush with an orchestra, orchestras and things. Yeah. And then we, by the time Emrys joined the band in about 93, we'd veered towards this pre-Britpop sort of sound. You know, it was Britpop before Britpop sort of thing. Yes, because yeah, that's one thing that's kind of caused a lot of bands out from that that eighties period was that because there was a cassette that came out with the NME, the C eighty six cassette, and yeah, things mm -hmm. were going generally well. And the NME was you know like a huge gatekeeper, you know they were selling a hundred thousand copies, and there was Melody Maker. And then if you got you know like John Peel again was was somebody who was really important for that kind of exposure. But then what I noticed was that. You know, around 87, 88 time, that indie scene had really changed. A lot of the bands who'd been together for for quite a few years were beginning to feel quite disillusioned and things were starting mm -hmm. to, to go. But how, how did you sort of cope? Because the, when the dance scene started to become much more the kind of, you know, what people were starting to get turned on to, you know, the indie bands were beginning to call it a day. So how did you cope with kind of shifts in musical kind of, tastes and interests we we we, we sent her off trade around 88 so we went on and sort of upward you know we were still going up and it's on an upward sort of trajectory for me personally as a, as a songwriter and a lyricist it was quite strange because all of a sudden the enemy and melody maker decided and i remember the sort of addition when they decided that words were suddenly irrelevant Right. And right as we're around, I remember sort of, they had a sort of a symposium and they all decided together that now you know, Simon Reynolds and David Stubbs and Jack Barron all decided words are irrelevant. <laughs> uh, and it became about, you know, about faceless dance music. I love dance music. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I absolutely, I still to this day, I absolutely love house music. Yes. And I love disco. So I've just, I've just always, you know, I've just always really loved and appreciated everything. And that's the first part of my interview with Johnny Brown from the band of Holy Joy. And for those people out there who are excited by the band, they have a new album that has just come out called Neon Primitives. And because I'm sort of surfing the cultural zeitgeist, I think we should play a song from it. This is on side one, if you've got vinyl. Um, this is tra a track titled So Sad. And then 
More chat, so don't you fear. That's a track titled So Sad. That's from the, prim- uh, the Primitives, from the Band of Holy Joy's new album titled Neon Primitives. You see, I'm not completely losing it. Anyway, this is going to be the second part of my interview with Johnny Brown from the band, where I was asking about, um, well, I'd been sort of talking about their sort of uh, history of record labels, because obviously in the l- late 80s, early 90s, they were on... Rough trade, but before that, they were on a small label called Flim Flam, who I'd never come across before, and I was curious. And this was Johnny's answer to my curiosity. Thank you, Johnny, for um, clearing this up. This is his answer. Flim Flam, well, they were a club in New Cross Gate, uh, a dance club, a sort of a, pro, a pre-house sort of club, where Jonathan Moore, out of Coldcut, DJ'd. Right. And, and it was a very successful club, and they made a lot of money. And so they decided to put that money into a record label. And they had a guy who was working at Mute, Mike, and a girl, Angie, who was working for a really top PR company in London. And four of them set up a record label. And Band of Holy Joy and The Beloved were, were signed to them. Oh, yes, because Beloved... Uh, great we... label, great yeah. people. That was really, really, really sort of... They were really passionate and it was really beautiful. Yes. 
Well, then, and then you did two records for Rough Trade at the end of the decade. I mean, did you? I mean, by then you'd already recorded and released quite a few albums, so yeah, mm-hmm. you were obviously not having a problem creating music because you seem to be doing an album a year. Which the only other people who were doing that were Momus and uh, Lawrence from Felt. So yeah, did, mm-hmm. Were you just? Was it just coming? <laughs> was it just coming on strong? There's lots to write about, and there's always things to explore. You know, yeah, I think if you're open. David, we to this day we put out an album a year. <laughs> uh, we've, we've released an album this week on on Tiny Global. We're on a label with the Nightingales and the Blue Orchids. Oh, fantastic! That's a, that's a very nice little stable of bands, isn't it? And we've just released a record called Neon Primitives. Oh, cool! Did you just going back? I mean, one thing that tripped a lot of bands up and people. I mean, there's the dynamic within the band, but then there's also the admin and the publishing. How did you navigate those tricky waters? Oh, um, you, you can't really. It's just you, you get that the, there's no way around them, really. They always end in tears <laughs> and tragedy. <laughs> um, we, 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 we had a really good manager called Nick Hobbs, who was really particular and really protective of the band. Uh, Rough Trade absolutely hated him, uh, but he got us some absolutely brilliant deals, publishing deals, record deals. And the guitarist John in the band was an accountant and he loved doing accounts. And I'd, all that passed me by at the time. I just I didn't, I didn't pay any attention to admin at all or the accounts or publishing deals. It just it rolled in and I rolled with it. And now I'm, I'm, you know, for the past 10 years, I've, I've just managed by myself to all the fattening and counts and that sort of thing. Yes. I, you slightly... But it's, it's, you know, it's... Go on. I was going to say you slightly cracked up there. So, so, so sorry, you were just saying you for the last 10 years you were... I've, I've done it myself. Yes. Yeah. So did, does that mean that you were able to sort of, A, get money and B, keep your music during that, that kind of rough trade and, and sort of post? Absolutely, yeah. We had money, we had autonomy. It was fantastic. Yes. And then rough trade obviously went into receivership. So did that cause any problems for the band? Kind of. It knocked work. You know, we're just, we, we were just on a lovely sort of upward trajectory. And then, yes, they went in receivership, and that sort of knocked us for a year. Yes. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because you you then had a break, didn't you? After nine, you had sort of nine active years, and then just as you, know, you were saying about Britpop, but, you know, you, just as that was kind of emerging from the grunge period, you decided to quit. Was that a tricky move, or did that, was that something that you just had enough? It was just one of those things. Loads of members of the band were sort of getting married and getting straight jobs. And we ran out of money, you know, for, we'd paid, you know, there's eight, eight members of the band and we'd sustained paying the eight members for about six, seven years. It just ran out of speed, it ran out of time, it ran out of steam. Um, and, yeah, we just, it just split. Yes. And did that feel, um, I was going to say, did that feel like, was that something that was coming and you kind of, you know, you weren't that surprised? Uh, yeah, the, the 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 last six months of it, yeah, it was, it was very, yeah, we ran out of ideas. Yeah, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And did that feel like quite a personal kind of wrench at the time? Because that was 92, 93, when you just released Tracksuit Vendetta. Uh, yeah, yeah. And David, it was a big wrench, yeah. Uh, I think it was more of a wrench than I knew at the time. You know, it was my life, you know, Band of Holy Joy is, it's sort of tall intents and purposes, my reason for living, you know, it still is. I'm so passionate about it. Yes. So I think at the time it probably was a major wrench. But at the same time, it was like 1993 and there were really sort of golden years for being able to express yourself and enjoy yourself. Yes. And I was DJing loads and I was doing loads of poetry and I started writing soundtracks for, for plays and I started writing plays. So so for eight or nine years, I didn't really, I didn't miss Holy Joy, but it was, there was unfinished business now, sort of, you know, it, it, there was something missing there. Yeah, absolutely. So it was a double-edged sort of thing, I think. And did you have, you know, obviously over those, that sort of intense nine years, did you have kind of people sort of asking you what you were up to and what, what happened to the band? Because you'd obviously sort of developed quite a, a fan base. Not really, actually. For the, not, not in those five years. I was living in Brixton and sort of, you know, I was clubbing loads and I was DJing in loads of clubs and loads of warehouses and going to loads of, and I was just sort of floating around a lot. I, I, I don't think I was, but then by 2001, I started coming around again. When the, when the internet happened, all of a sudden, there's all these holy joy chat rooms and things, and you know, and you're getting the whole interest around the world. Then I sort of you realised that there was something there still, sort of thing. Yes, absolutely. Because then you know, you, you sort of came back in. It was at 2002, and you, you you know, not just came back, but you also had a new album, which was Love Never Fails. So did yes. So do, what what was the lineup at that time? Because obviously you'd obviously you know you you were holding the baton of the, the band on your yeah. own in in your bedsit or whatever. Um, so did you did you just say right? Is was it one of those like the you know the return of the Magnificent Seven? Did you sort of phone so phone some mates and say look? Let's no, not this. at all. Um, Alf, who's in the band, who's Holy Joy, you know, from early days. Alf had a studio in Soho where he's doing music for adverts and soundtracks and things. And Chris, who's the violin player, we were all just hanging out together. And I'd written a solo album, and I started using the studio in the downtime. Alf got his accordion out. The violin came out. Alf knew a drummer who played on the last hold on tracks with Vendetta. We got him in. Uh, next thing we've got a bass player in next thing someone says do you fancy doing a gig at a local fete so we did a holy joy gig and then someone in cambridge says do you want to play a gig in this old museum so we did two gigs all of a sudden we're gigging as a band i spoke to jeff jeff says do you fancy putting an album out um that was at the band was back you know yes absolutely uh, and we played a gig at 93 feet east and there was just a queue around the block, you know. Uh, it was, you know, the people couldn't get in. It was wild, you know. Yes. Did you feel and a little, the, when, you, when you were doing that, just just slightly, did you, when Britpop was happening, did you, were you watching those bands thinking, oh my God, we should be doing that too. Why, why are we not on those Shine compilations? And not as big as Blur and Oasis, but did you sort of feel a little bit like, oh, I wish, wish we'd slightly kept it together? Not really, because I'd had my time and I had my moment. And do you know what? Britpop absolutely, absolutely passed me right by. Uh, I think only it's only the past 
three or four years I've, I've, I've listened to Blur, you know. Yes. Never heard of them at the time. I was, I was really obsessed with dance music. Yes, absolutely. So and you, that was just... So you got back with Rough Trade and Jeff. Did that feel quite yeah. um, an interesting, like, oh, my God, this is like Friends Reunited. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Jeff's, Jeff's beautiful, you know, he's, yeah, he's, a, good, he's a good guy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. But then it didn't, you, you know, at that stage, one would have thought the band were back in the saddle, keeping up with my uh, Return of the Magnificent Seven. Um, but then you, you, you stopped again. Did it, did it just, what, what was the reason for that? I had a brain tumour. Right. And I wasn't really getting on with some some of the members in the band, but I had a brain tumour, basically. Yeah. So I was out for the count. Wow. Uh, and I, I I was writing plays. I had, I had a play on in the Edinburgh Festival. I had a play on in Glasgow. I had a play on in London. Um, so far, and then that, and one of the plays went to Paris and went travelling around Europe and things. So I was sort of quite busy. Uh, so the band again just took a, a back, a back sort of slip, and I wasn't really in control of the band. And you know, there was other people that were sort of to the fore, really. So only the past ten years, where I thought, God, I've got to take this on myself, and just do it on my own terms, which I've done for the past ten years. Excellent. And obviously, you know, having a major operation is is quite something and scary. Did did you was it touch and go ever between you know that that kind of having the results and then having the operation and recovery it was a strange strange time um it was it was touch and go i think once once i got diagnosed i was in the hospital and it says you've got a brain tumor and i just looked at the doctor and i says well what what's next and i knew those two it was going to go two ways and then he says it's benign i thought great after that i was just really positive and three or four weeks had the operation um, I was a bit foolish afterwards because I was sort of partying quite a lot and I went straight to Edinburgh straight after I came out of hospital uh, with my friend Irvin and then we both went to we went off to Greece I went on a bender in Greece which was a bit sort of silly came back to London and then Holy Joy had a little tour planned in France so I went and did this tour so three or four weeks after I came out of hospital I was on stage you know <laughs> Uh, but looking back, I, I put I'd put on about you know I'd put on twice the weight. I'm, I've I've always been a skinny little lad, you know. Yeah. I was bloated to hell. Looking back on it now, it's just like I should have just went to the countryside and just recovered, you know. But I've always just dived into things. Yes, <laughs> uh, that was impressive actually. Normally, one has an existential kind of moment and sort of need to take time, but no, you were there. You were out of the. I'll, out of the morphine trip and on onto the floor, on, onto the stage. Onto the stage, <laughs> uh, probably very foolish in, in retrospect. Uh, I cracked about three or four months afterwards. Like in London, winter came, and all the attention I'd been getting in hospital all just disappeared, and I was left alone. And then things got very, very existential, right? In an extreme way. So I, I, sort, I sort of learned a lot. Yes. So was this kind of more of an emotional journey during that winter? It was just, yeah, God, I was just, you know, I, I was, I, I returned to London. I found myself homeless. Um, I found myself with no money. So I had to work behind a bar that I'd been working as a, that was an art gallery owned by a friend. And I ended up just working at the foundry behind the bar every night just to make money, just to live, uh, staying on a friend's sofa 
until I just picked myself up and got a flat. And that is the second part of my interview with Johnny Baran from the Band of Holy Joy. And if you want to know any more information, you could Google the Band of Holy Joy and find that um, find their website. And also they've got a Facebook page. And as I said earlier, and hopefully you were paying attention, they have a new album out this month called Neon Primitives. Check it out. It might just change your life. But anyway, I think we should have some more music. This is going back in time a bit. And this is a track titled What the Moon Saw. Fine stuff indeed. That is the track titled What the Moon Saw from the Band of Holy Joy. This is going to be the third part of my interview with Johnny where I've been talking about the amount of musicians that um, the band have got, got through over the decades. And um, yes, the different lineups. And um, just curious to know how he was coping with that emotional roller coaster as people came and people went. And this was his reply. Johnny, take it away. Yes, it was, yeah, it was, you know, it's not a case of last suit and it's just friends. So I, now I just take people from the radio, you know. Um, so I, had a, I had a split with some band members and then I just thought, I've got to do this myself. And the happiest times I've ever had in Holy Joy was the really early days 
when I was putting out cassettes myself and it was just in the basement and we were making music for ourselves, not for anybody else. And the, you know, so I, I wanted to get back to that state and I wanted to get away from the accordions and the violins and that whole holy joy thing of being Brechtian minstrels and just do something a bit more, I don't know, something a bit more pure, you know? Yes. And I just wanted to get in a room every Sunday with a group of musicians and just get in a circle and just play and see what came out. So I've just I've stuck to that ever since. And we've, we've every year the music changes a little bit, but it keeps that holy joy spirit. Excellent. And has and does that mean that you still have the same lineup, um, pretty much as you as you had in two thousand and seven? Um, no, uh, it's changed quite radically since then, uh, and on just on two shifts. But Inga, Peter, and James have been with me been with the band for the past eight years yes and then drummers have came and gone bass players come and go but me and james write together we've been together for seven eight years and inga you know there's all the visuals all the projections all the all the sleeves she's been with us from day one yeah that's amazing and then to, to, to come up to date you've just Literally released an album this month, this week, haven't you? Neon yeah, this Privileges. week, yeah. So that yeah. that must be. I mean, I mean, you've you, again. You know, it's it's since getting back together, you've almost done an album a year. So again, is it just the case that you know the, the material's there and you've just still still on that creative kind of? Yeah. Well, uh, David, it's not just a, an album a year. We to to fund the records, to fund the studios. We do every month when, when we're sort of recording an album, every month we'll put out a limited edition CDR of 100. And we make, you know, ambient music, poetry, uh, just weird Holy Joy stuff. And they sell straight away. So every month, 100 go out, we sell them. That pays for the studio for the, the one big album. Fantastic. You have got so, a, That's a great business model, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's good. It, it works, you know. I don't really like the, I don't like the crowdfunding things, you know. They did. They 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 sound a bit. They yes, they they sound a bit they, sort of. They just sound really dodgy, dodgy, <laughs> prostitutionish, uh, just compromising. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I don't want to sell me guitar to someone, a signed guitar. And I don't want to sort of charge someone fifty pound to come and sit with us in a dressing room. Yes. Well it's I just... well well I think it's also the thing that you're kind of making a promise to do something before you've done it and then you've got to deliver. And I think there there is also there was that case recently, wasn't there, with some crowdfunding organization that had sort of gone into liquidation or bankruptcy. Liquidation. So yeah, it sounded indeed. like a lot of people were not going to get the money that their fans had given them. And I, I suppose I spoke to a few people in bands who'd done the crowdfunding thing and and they found it slightly worrying that the album that they were making might not be very good <laughs> it was like yeah that's, yep. gonna, that's gonna be a bit of a tricky one for you whereas actually what you're doing sounds a little bit more like i've done it you know so i'm not promising you anything because actually this is the product yep. and here you go it's it's you know and you're not sort of said you're not having a sleepless night thinking god because I've, you know, because there's been a few people who promise lots of like added goodies if you sort of give them even more money, and then people getting annoyed if you don't sort of deliver them. But I suppose a lot of people don't even cost the whole kind of package thing, so they realise that actually they promise more than they could deliver. 
Yeah, completely, absolutely. I mean, to put a record out is a big, big. You know, before Tiny Global, and we put our own records out. Well, we set up our own label, Radio Joy, so we know we've been through that whole thing now, where we put our own record out. We go and get a, a distribution deal with Cargo. You know, we deal with the packages. We deal with the, you know, the, the printers. Then you, you know, you deal with the PR guy and get the, you know, the radio and things and the press. So we sort of, you know, we've dealt with all that. So we know from that side of it. Yes. It's a lot of work. It's a lot. It's a job, isn't it, really? It's, there's, yeah. no, there's no way around it. And what would you say to your, you know, an 18-year-old self who was starting out and, and sort of you thought, oh, there's a couple of key points. I'll just, I'll just have a quick whisper in your ear. I just wondered what you'd learned from, from decades of the music creative industries. I couldn't tell you eight year old nothing because uh, it's all changed. Yeah, I just but I just wondered if there was anything uh, that you the new you, world I haven't got a clue about. Yeah, no, no one has really. Uh, did they? But I just wondered if there was something. I, mean, I, I, I just to get a good get a good press person. A good press person. Yeah, a really good PR person. Yeah, yes, mm-hmm. and oh. a good lawyer. <laughs> yes, so that's cool. Yeah. And and you know because because I am amazed and impressed with the amount of work that you've done. Is it the case that you've managed to sort of keep a hold on it? You know, that, that, that's all nicely catalogued and filed and, and archived. Because you did all these self-release cassettes. I just wondered if you managed to sort of get those into a format that everyone's able to access now. They are. They're on, they're on, a, on a record called More Favourite Fairy Tales, which was released by a German label about two years ago, two and a half years ago. A guy called Frank put them out in Germany. And... Um, it's in a lovely, absolutely beautiful box, all on vinyl, all with the original booklets in, um, and it's, it's for sale. It's a, record, a label called Vinyl On Demand, VOD. Make a note, it's um, worth tracking down. Anyway, that's going to be the third part of my interview. Um, I've just got one little bit more to go, but before we have that and before the end of the show, I think we should play another track. This is going to be taken from the new album, And as I said, the album is titled Neon Primitives. And this is a track titled Some People Have Winged Fortune. You'll like it. An unsure memory I have 
stars and they will have scars The victims and aggressors I have walked down a thousand dark end streets like this And collected so many tales to keep like souvenirs in time That's a track titled Some People Have Winged Fortune from the new album um, Neon Primitives. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show, if you want to contact me. I know I've already given you my details, but I'm just feeling desperate and lonely. You can via Facebook, Twitter, just go to at C86 Show. And um, as I said again, as I said before, and I'll say it again, you can find archives of the show on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud and Podbean. Just go to C86 Show. They're all there. Hundreds of them. Um, anyway, this is going to be the final part of my interview with Johnny, where I was talking about that important thing that happens to all of us at some stage. Archive him. Yes, you've got to go in the attic and archive your stuff. And I was just wondering how he was doing with his vast back catalogue. This was his answer. Johnny, what's your answer? The, the, the next phase, the, the flimflam years, that's all been archived on Clouds That Break the Sky on, on Tiny Global. Fantastic. So that is really good. So are you, do you feel that, this, the, that where you are at the moment is possibly the, one of the, the best parts or the, the best periods of your life? I think so. I'm very, very happy, yes. Because mm-hmm. often, you know, when, when people get into that age, you know, just being able to sort of release new material, still having people, fans who still want to listen to you and come and watch you live. You know, it can, you know, for some, you know, some people I spoke to, it's a bit of a tricky one because one minute they're playing, you know, the main stage at Glastonbury or some big venues and now they're sort of like struggling to know what to do next. So it sounds like you've you've managed to sort of kind of navigate those kind of tricky waters. For me, it's an absolute blessing to David. Yes. And what do Absolutely. You, which is fantastic. And, and what is a typical Band of Holy Joy fan? Do you have somebody when you look out? Oh yes, or is it quite a varied mix of people? It's it's, it's varied. I mean, when we're playing in London, we played the Lexington about 
two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Ingo says, oh, it's just fat old men. <laughs> fat, balding men, you know. What with Ramones T-shirts. <laughs> yeah, with, with Blue Orchids T-shirts. Uh, but it's it's just it's not you know it's, it's weird we, we get we get loads of screaming women still you know and I think and you get loads I see loads of little indie kids and you see loads of sort of different people at the gigs and I go and talk to everyone you know after the gig I always go and talk to as many people as I can yeah um, but there is a lot of people my age who are you know come up through the sort of then they're there um, but I was, I'm always keen to break away from that and break out of that. And, and did the, I was just wondering, did the band sort of, you know, do much in Europe and, and even America? Europe, absolutely loads, constantly. We constantly toured Europe. We, we toured Russia twice. Uh, we did lots in Iceland, Greece. We never played America until 10 years ago. And I, I went to America a few times to do interviews for the band. You know, Jeff would send us over there, you know, I'd go do all these music seminars. But we actually didn't play it 10 years ago when a, a super fan paid for the band to go over and organise five gigs for us in New York. And the, the sort of that coast, you know, the, the northeast coast. Right. Fantastic. Uh, that was just, that was absolutely, we played a big theatre in Brooklyn which was fantastic. And we played the Knitting Factory in Manhattan, which was shite. <laughs> uh, really horrible, sort of pretentious sort of place. But the theatre gig was the one he put all his time into, you know, and we played with this beautiful uh, band called my, this guy called Michael Grace, uh, who's just, you know, a, a New York indie sort of god. Oh. He's like the New York sort of Morrissey, you know, Michael Grace Jr. Oh. And it was Lisa, it was it was Mick Ronson's daughter too, Lisa Ronson. She was in the band, okay. and they were beautiful. So we we played this double bill with them, and that was just it was really really nice. God, that's fantastic! Some yeah. nice rock um, heritage there, actually. And did you ever get you know? Because one person that, that a lot of bands mentioned because they gave him, he was that kind of gatekeeper. Was John Peel? Did you ever? Do much with John Peel on the show and any sessions? No, I don't think we ever, ever did a John Peel session. I, his producer, John Walters, hated us. He didn't, he didn't like us at all. Yeah, uh, They came to see us play at the ICA and they just, really early on, and they just didn't get it, you know. Um, we've done loads of sessions for whoever was around John Peel, you know, on the early evening shows and all the all the other Radio 1 sessions never john peel yeah because he got into bands like the pogues and then he got into the boot heel something god i can't remember the boot something tappers boot foot tappers. that's yeah. right and then he also got obviously the men they couldn't hang the pogues yeah so yeah. it's strange that he didn't sort of pick up on on the sort of interesting and kind of creative side but then you know people like daniela dax and and also i think people like felt and also momus didn't all you know, even though they were in that indie scene and really yeah. amazing artists, they didn't sort of ever bridge it. And even though I do love John Peel, I, I do realise that yeah. um, there were some people that didn't ever get into onto the show and, and into a session, really. We fly that flag. <laughs> if I can fly a flag with Mormus and Lawrence, I'm happy. Yes, I know. Classic, 
classic things. So look, you've got a new album out, which must be yes. just thrilling. And then is there any dates? You mentioned you, you've had one already, but are there any dates coming up? Not until November. We're going to have a break for the summer. And then November, we're, we're going to Germany. Um, I think we're going to Spain. And I'm going to do a London one. And, and we might do Bristol. We'd love to come to Norwich. You should come to Norwich, shouldn't you? It was. It yeah, would yeah. be. It would be a waste not to. Indeed, if you want to put a band on the band of Hody Joy, November December, that's what you should be booking at the moment. Anyway, that sadly is the, the um, last part of my interview with Johnny Brown from the band. A huge thank you for giving me the time for that interview. It was a Sunday, six o'clock. You see, we work all the time, and um, as I said, you can find out more information. They have a website which is bandofholyjoy.co.uk and also they're on various social media sites including Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Check it out. They might just change your life. And you can even email them which is bandofholyjoy at gmail.com. That is it for the moment. This has been David Esau. This has been the C86 Show. Thank you ever so much for listening. I'm going to leave you with another track taken from the new album. I know, I have just got my finger on the pulse. This is um, titled The Devil Has a Hold on the Land from the album Neon Primitives. Have a great week. Impact assessment overseers, cognitive therapy dummies, branded content providers. An unanticipated problem has occurred. Check back soon. Try again. For the devil has a hold on the land. 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 Warning to all. Money-suited concierges in overpriced hotels. Practitioners of hostile architecture. Architects of universal credit. Credit loan arrangers and providers. Providing indebted misery in all the forgotten towns. We are reasonably well adjusted to a profoundly sick society now. The devil has a hold on the land. The devil has a hold on the land. The devil has a hold on the land. And the devil has a hold on the land. 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 
Our style and money-grasping smiles Those great at misleading Not too great at explaining Who would hold our health in their hands And sell our coughs for laughs Turn our public ills and cares Into private stocks and shares Nuanced to algorithms Blighted by addictive schisms Filtered through a soft-core prism The devil has a hold on the land 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 And the devil has a hold on the land 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 Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. 